Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. People of Earth, you can't destroy. Well, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode of Conspiracy the Show. What makes it so special? I'm the only one in the studio. Well, besides you, you're here listening, but not really. By the time you hear this, I will have left the studio fucking hours and hours ago, probably days ago, depending on when this goes up. But don't worry, I'm not the only person who's going to be talking on this episode, We are going to be joined on the phone in a few minutes by journalist John Potash, who, if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's the guy who wrote a book that we talk about on this podcast all the time called Drugs as Weapons Against Us, which, among other things, is the book that brought us the idea that maybe, just maybe, Courtney Love is a CIA asset. And here's the thing. You're not going to come away from this episode thinking that any less. This episode at its core, I guess, is about embracing your inner conspiracy theorist and the need to, in this political climate, take a little more skeptical approach to reading the news, especially news that is generated by the government, but just news in general. It's crazy out there. But what this episode also is, it's a really good example of how fast the news moves these days. We recorded this on August 2nd, the interview that is, and as I record this part, the introduction to the interview, it's August 19th. That's 17 days. At the time we recorded this, Jeffrey Epstein was still alive, and that comes up a whole lot in this interview. And also, the cop who murdered Eric Garner still had his job. That guy has since been fired, I believe, as of today. But another thing that comes up in this interview related to Jeffrey Epstein that is also an example of just how fast things are progressing these days. I don't know if progressing is the right word, but at one point in this interview, a a theory about Jeffrey Epstein and what he might have actually been doing at all those sex parties. I mean, obviously sex with underage girls, but the motivation behind that and the, the end goal of it, there is a theory that's brought up in this interview again from August 2nd, that when I heard it, it sounded like the kind of thing that yes, seems plausible and no, we'll never hear it suggested by any sort of mainstream or reputable, and I put that in air quotes, media outlet in any way, because it is highly inflammatory. And 
here we are, August 19th, and that shit has made its way into the media. In the span of recording this episode on August 2nd, and now here we are, August 19th, two different, uh, I don't know, not really sources, because this isn't a theory that's ever, probably ever going to be confirmed, but there is an article on New York Magazine, nymag.com, if you're keeping score at home, called Real Hedge Fund Managers Have Some Thoughts on What Epstein Was Actually Doing. And it's a fascinating article. They went out and interviewed, just as the title implies, a bunch of different hedge fund managers and just asked, what did you know about Jeffrey Epstein? What do you know about Jeffrey Epstein? How did he make his money? No one fucking knows how he made his money. And it's a really fascinating article. And at one point, they throw a theory out there about what Jeffrey Epstein might have been doing. And they they don't even say it in the article. They actually link to a Twitter thread. And we'll link to it from the website, unpops.com. You can go out and see this article and the Twitter thread. And they're both really interesting reads. And I would highly suggest you go out and uh, look them over. But I also don't want to spoil the big Jeffrey Epstein theory reveal in this interview, even though I have mentioned it on a couple recent Unpops podcast episodes. But hey, maybe you only listen to this one, in which case I think I've also already mentioned it, maybe on last week's uh, episode about Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> but this week you get to hear the interview where I first heard that theory, and it's uh, it's one that's spreading, and it doesn't seem that crazy. But uh, we don't just talk about Jeffrey Epstein during this interview. We talk about John's time working as an addiction counselor in Baltimore in the late 80s, early 90s, which, if you know anything about the crack epidemic, wild time to work in Baltimore as an addiction counselor. Uh and we we talk about uh, some of the things that are in his book, the death of Tupac Shakur, death of Notorious Big, whether those murders will ever be solved. Spoiler alert, they probably will not. And uh, so many other things. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with journalist John Potash. We're on the phone with John Potash, the man behind the book and film, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, The CIA War on Musicians and Activists. John, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Adam. We've, uh, we've covered a couple different sections of your most recent book, the, the one I just mentioned, and the accompanying documentary on this podcast before. But if you don't mind, uh, just give us a quick overview of what that book is in general is about yeah it's about the cia's project mk ultra which used drugs as what they said in their documents were unconventional warfare and it shows how that unconventional warfare was actually used on anyone who dissented against the uh, cia's racist um, pro-war agenda and hyper-capitalist agenda and it particularly used musicians and manipulated musicians to help promote drugs to to hurt activist minds. And um, it was it targeted also activists in the Black Panthers and the Students for Democratic Society, which were the largest anti-war it was the largest anti-war group in the 1960s. And I further show how it's it's been used against activists up to today. 
what was your background previously before you start? Because you wrote another book before this that centers more around uh, just the Tupac killing. What was your background previously and what made you start uh, researching this particular topic? Well, I was into social activism um, out of college and I was also a psych major in college. So I went to work as an addictions counselor in Baltimore City in the late 1980s. And uh, that's when I had, I counseled someone who said my father was a Black Panther killed by the police. And so I started researching the Black Panthers uh, for a character in a novel uh, loosely based on the idea of drugs as weapons against us. And um, so that's why I kind of took a, a tangent from that first book to uh, focus on uh, you know, Tupac and write the FBI war on Tupac's score and black leaders. And so um, I've, yeah, I've been working as a counselor for three decades. I got more advanced degrees and uh, you know, studied at Columbia University, um, both community organizing, sociology, and counseling, and uh, still make my living as a counselor because um, you know, all the censorship of my work, it doesn't pay the bills. Yeah, of course. Um, so, wow, you were so you were working as an addiction counselor. You said in the eighties in Baltimore. Yeah, in late eighties. Wow, right, I started in nineteen eighty nine in Baltimore. Yeah, so that's really the the thick of the crack epidemic and when it first started, kind of spreading. Yeah. So yeah, it, I heard a lot of the stories that The Wire was based on because the writer of The Wire oh, sure. was uh, writing at the same time as I was doing counseling there. So I heard a lot of the stories before they came out in The, in the Wire. Yeah, and that, that kind of makes uh, – seems like it would make a natural transition into wanting to look into the CIA a bit more, being in the middle of uh, the crack epidemic when it took off because that's obviously a yeah. big uh, theory out there that uh, the CIA was instrumental in starting that. Have you, is that a thing you've looked into as part of your uh, work? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that was a huge part of, of uh, my book, um, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. But, I mean, it's even more than a theory because the Washington Post uh, even quoted the CIA inspector general saying, admitting that the CIA was trafficking right. cocaine. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, and so when in 1991 I was – in the middle of a Washington, D.C. street helping block traffic as part of an anti-war protest during the uh, first Gulf War under, you know, President H. George H.W. Bush. And and somebody who was working with the Christic Institute told me, uh, gave me a copy of the Kerry Report, the John Kerry Report, you know, our former right. um, high official. And so the Kerry Report just showed the uh, CIA drug trafficking with the Honduran, you know, army and all that, and with the the Contras. And so this stuff, this information was out there. You know, it didn't get far out there. You know, Gary Webb put it out there, it became viral, and then they pretended like he was making it up. And But, you know, it's a lot of people did, of course, hear about it. And uh, so it is a good chunk of, uh, of my book and film. But, um, you know, it, I do focus more one other aspect, since a lot of people already kind of heard all about the CIA cocaine trafficking, you know, with the Nicarag- Nicaraguan Contras and all, I wanted to kind of really go into more detail on the other things that they haven't heard already. Right. The Courtney Love theory, I think, is the most fascinating thing in the book, because it Thanks. it sounds so outlandish. And then when you read it, especially if you read it with any sort of understanding of what MK Ultra was and how it worked, it all actually makes a lot of sense, which uh, I, I think there's something to be, to be said for how you present that theory in that book, because it really does, on okay. the surface, 
seem like one of the wildest claims, and not so much after you get into it. Thanks. Yeah, I must say, me and my my wife made me rewrite that chapter so (laughs) many times to make it clear. It took so many rewritings to just get it out there because it is so bizarre, and there's so much to it, but just it takes a while to really get it clear-cut, and I'm glad that it became clear-cut for you after I reorganized it so many times, you know, to make it more clear. And uh, now with this Jeff Epstein stuff, uh, you know, some of what she's about is is coming out. Uh, She's the only woman celebrity, you know, in his black book, Circled. And uh, people like Detective uh, Ed Opperman, who was hired by one of the victims of Jeff Epstein, has said on his podcast that he's found that that Courtney Love, uh, you know, evidence is out there, and that he, you know, and some of the evidence he's found is that Courtney Love was recruiting girls for prostitution. Wow, so it's a good good chance that that's exactly what he was doing. You know, as the only woman celebrity in Jeff Epstein's black book. Do you think the that's that's fascinating. Do you do you think we're actually going to get all of the information and details from what's going on with Jeffrey Epstein? I don't know. Uh yeah, it's hard to say where that's going to go because yeah, I mean, obviously the first investigation was was squashed. I mean, it was right. a joke investigation. Um you know, he's he's in jail part-time, part-time he's doing, and then you know, just for a few days or something, and then he's out, you know, just hanging out in Miami, enjoying himself. So, um, you know, so many of these um, investigations have said that he obviously has intelligence connections. Um, you know, U.S. intelligence is obviously, you know, protecting him, but, you know, maybe also with Mossad or whoever other, whatever other intelligence around the world, maybe British intelligence, I really don't know, but, but these intelligence connections points to the kind of activities that were copied in MKUltra. Uh, you know, in another part of my book, I talked about the um, German colonies in the Latin American countries that were operating with Operation Condor. And so in those Operation Condor countries, you had these colonies. And the New York Times detailed one of the colonies, uh, the one under in Chile. And it was started by, they said, a Nazi a doctor named Peter Schaefer. And it had a... Um, uh, it, they, they described it as like an, a country's worth of arms and a country's worth of documents, as if they, they had their own intelligence agency in this little colony in Chile. They also had their own airspace that, that Chile couldn't fly over. It wow. was an incredible amount of power. And so a number of countries had these types of German colonies inside their countries. It's, it's almost as if their countries were... Um, occupied by a foreign force, but, you know, it was really a CIA-backed force. And so what they did, one of the uh, articles that detailed and had pictures of the colony said, um, it was an article in a, you know, a different uh, paper than the New York Times wasn't going to reveal all of this, but what this other article had about this colony was the fact that they were holding sex parties with young, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed German kids and they were inviting these uh, all like tons of politicians in Chile to these parties and then filming them uh, having sex with these kids to blackmail them and that's the leading theory of what was going on with Jeff Epstein is he was using these sex parties to not just like entice you know politicians influence makers but to blackmail them and uh this was you know this was thought to be one of the subprojects of MK Ultra um you know with with Chile and Operation Condor, obviously, you know, CIA was backing Operation Condor and these dictators. I mean, I actually know a guy through a 
mutual friend who, who was living down there in Paraguay where Condor was running. And his father was high up in the Air Force, you know, helping out things in Paraguay. So here in, uh, you know, now we see with with Chile what was going on was the same thing that it appears that Epstein was doing. You know, many, you know, articles have talked about his tons of videos of things going on of these sex parties. And, you know, it's thought that he was, they were, this is what, why they were using them, how they were, could gain power over these politicians. Right. Other makers, yeah. And that, you know, that that's a thing that might sound unrealistic to uh, if a particularly skeptical listener, but that's actually a pretty common uh, tactic, especially in Russia. Uh, I think they call yeah. it compromat, where you just gather as much compromising information as you can about uh, yeah. people that you might need blackmail at some point. So it sure. wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was what was going on with jeffrey epstein yeah i i uh talked about this on another podcast recently but jeffrey epstein to me uh seems like an absolute horrific monster who we should be protecting with every asset we have right now because if he (laughs) dies in prison without us knowing everything he knows that will just be an extra tragedy on top of all the tragedies he's been responsible for. Um, yeah, and and, he, and the word and uh, details about some of what he was doing are coming out more and more. But you know, I have in my book that Courtney Love was using Rohypnol, you know, uh, or roofies. She used it against Kurt Cobain when he went to the coma a month before he died. And so, um, you know, it's it's believed that uh, the same thing was being used at, at Epstein's parties. Is is both the, the people that attended the parties and the women, you know, the younger and younger women, oh, wow. were being drugged and, and roofied, and that's part of how they accomplished what they accomplished too. And they would start with older women, make it look like a normal party, and then bring in younger and younger women till they got to these kids being in there, you know. And so that's some of the way it was done. Wow, that is insane. Um, with I think this kind of ties into what we're talking about right now, as far as the all of the information about Epstein ever coming out at some point. Do you think, to get back to uh, more of what's in your book, do you think it's even realistic at this point to expect that the murder of Tupac Shakur or Notorious Big will ever be solved? Like, what would hap- have to happen before we see something like that? Yeah, well, um, you know, we're. I think just uh, independent media groups are pushing pushing the mainstream media groups more and more to let more and more information out and that's why they finally actually gave uh you know in this unsolved you know uh, series they had that they made so popular they gave Russell Poole more you know, more credit than they would ever give him before that um but you know basically Russell Poole did the definitive investigation on on that in terms of just finding his fellow police officers at all levels of death row records, um, you know, involved in the murder of Tupac and Biggie. But you know, Biggie was a little more collateral damage. It was really, you know, Tupac was the national political activist and target. Right. But um, the, uh, yeah, no, I don't think it will, it will ever really come out 
uh, and you know fully be accepted. But in the A and E documentary that I was involved in, that I uh, I appeared in, you know, the, they ended with the, with Al Sharpton's conclusion, it, him saying that when people you know buck authority and uh, basically offer you know a um, radical you know, left-wing opinion and, and are, influ- you know, so influential as Tupac was, authority does away with them. I mean, he did, that's basically what he said in, in the last, like, minute or two of that documentary, and that's what they concluded with. And, you know, he's, he's basically was saying that, yes, the authorities killed Tupac because his voice was getting too big and he was too, you know, too activist and too against uh, the, the conservative authorities. So, yeah, you know, it has come out more that way. Right. And I, th- I feel like the we know what the FBI did in relation to the Black Panthers like that has all come out. So I, I feel like people who discredit the idea that maybe the government was involved in uh, what happened to Tupac. Also, I feel like yeah, the Black- he was he-, he was. Yeah, he was head of the new African Panthers. Right. Before he became a rapper. And they, they were involved in. Yeah, they were active in eight to ten cities. So he was already a national black leader before he became a rapper, and you know, and so you know, adding that wealth and fame to his you know national activist leadership, it was obvious that they were going to you know, target him. And the the there is a interview that I always point people to that I think is still on Amazon, and it was an interview with Tupac in prison right before he signed with Death Row Records. And the things he says in that interview, like that, watching that interview was maybe the first time when I really was hit with this feeling of, oh, yeah, the government killed him. Because the things he says in that interview are exactly the things the Black Panthers were doing and saying that led to the government intervening in that affair, to put it mildly. Right. And, and people, any skeptics out there should realize that this comes from, you know, the, the FBI documents outlined the counterintelligence program and activists in, you know, uh, white activists uh, in, you know, basically broke into an FBI office at night and stole all the documents. And that's how we found out about the FBI's counterintelligence program. And they were targeting leftists in general, but particularly black leftists, and they were murderously targeting them. That's, that's in the documents. And so, um, M, you know, M. Wesley Swearingen was a part of the uh, Los Angeles FBI COINTELPRO, and he said that, you know, he knows that the F- COINTELPRO continued just under different names, at least until the, the uh, 1990s. And so it's, you know, it's pretty obvious that uh, those tactics were going to be used again in the 1990s against black leadership. It's clear cut to me. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Do you think uh, what happened to Tupac and Notorious Big, at least a, the details of how they were murdered, could that happen today with everyone having a phone attached to their hand? Oh, yeah, definitely. Just because of the fact, I mean, look at look at Nipsey Hussle. What happened to him? I mean, whether it was called on film or not, what they do is they grab the film and then they confiscate it and they keep it. And, uh, you know, you'd have to not only have the phone in your hand, but you'd also have to have it attached to the Internet or else the, uh, you know, they did that to, uh, with um, Eric Garner's murder. Um, you know, his friend recorded his murder and then they, they put his friend in jail for recording that murder, you know, even right. though he got out there. Uh, his friend was jailed for recording it, and um, you know, and, and you know that, that police officer who was the most you know involved in, in choking him to death 
still hasn't even been fired from the force, much less you know um, convicted of murder. So, yeah, I always I always tell people police killings are a good place to start if you think conspiracies never happen. Because that's yeah. really all a cover-up is. It's it, like a conspiracy is just another name for a cover-up, basically. Right, right. And right. we see it all the time with police killings where, in a lot of cases, you know, the video won't come out for a few more months. And then we find out, oh, you've been lying about this that whole time. Well, that's that's a conspiracy. And it, it's, not, right. it's not as rare as people make it out to be. You mentioned yeah, – I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say that the, the idea – I mean, you know, the whole – the word conspiracy being associated with irrational is just a uh, you know, mainstream media. You know, the oligarchs use their mainstream media for the, to trick people into thinking that uh, you know anyone who who even has the hint of conspiracy is irrational. But people conspire every day to to do things behind the scenes. It's just you know normal. You know, it's just a rhetorical trick they use against us. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, is the the negative connotation around the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist. Do you think that was a an actual effort on the part of the government to to make that happen or do you think it just kind of happened naturally? No, that was that was I've read articles that explored that and the history of that and the way US intelligence used that. It was a concerted effort. Yeah, that's always always been uh, kind of my feeling on it. Also, uh, like I I know we we did an episode about Alex Jones at one point, and when Alex Jones first uh, started making the rounds, there were other conspiracy theorists uh, at the time, namely William Cooper, who was like, "That guy's probably just here to discredit us and make everyone else look kind of silly." And uh, I, I kind of uh, I've always kind of imagined that at one point in the early 90s, the government had this decision to make with the Internet coming out where it's going to be a way that a lot of information is going to reach people. So do we tackle every piece of information that comes out individually or do we just get ahead of it and discredit the idea of questioning the government as a whole? And I feel like they went with that second option, and it it seems like it worked yeah. pretty well. Yeah, uh, it's, it's crazy. I, I I'm just very against censorship, and um, I I don't even know much about Alex Jones. All I know is his Infowars and other people that work for him interviewed me twice, and the first time um, the it got you know the first interview got about. Um, 750,000 views before it was taken off the air. Um, but the second interview got up to about 25,000 views in just maybe a day or two, or three or something. It was just very fast and maybe a week or whatever it was. And all of a sudden it was frozen. The views, the number of views was frozen and never surpassed that after that. And I don't even know why, I don't even know how that works, how wow. they do that. But yeah, they, they do those things. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't you know, again, I don't even know all of Alex Jones' views except for he's, you know, believes uh, 911 was a false flag and, and you know who doesn't really these days yeah. that there was corruption around 911 but um uh besides that i mean know his views so i i can't can comment if he's anti-government i don't think that's a good enough reason to censor him you know that's really oh yeah good. for sure yeah um you mentioned uh nipsey hustle earlier mm-hmm. uh there have been since you wrote this book a, a couple of kind of high profile deaths of rappers there was nipsey hustle and extentacion both which uh 
I was shocked that someone was arrested right away in both of those cases. That is a unique characteristic for rap murders, for sure. Uh, but yeah. do you think, especially in the case of Nipsey Hussle, do you think that it's a because he was a very outspoken activist? Uh, do you think there is something more going on with his death than what we've been told? I do. I've heard about some of his activism and. And I do think there there is probably more there than than we've been told. And uh, I, I researched it a little bit, but I just can't say I researched it enough to to really be definitive because I haven't seen a good enough sources. I mean, some sources that I just uh, can't really confirm did say that he that Nipsey that the shooter of Nipsey Hussle said he was paid tens of thousands of dollars by a police. Um, officer to kill hustle so and he was promised that he would not be convicted of it uh, if he did that and so but that's again it's like not the sort i can't say the sources were so good for that so i don't right. know if it's true but and there's enough like uh, other factors around it of you know the his activism that make me think that it was probably in line with the other you know rap murders and again let me just say that um, this case with Tupac, people have to understand that the situation with Tupac, um, it was covered by a mainstream journalist named Randall Sullivan, who wrote the book Labyrinth, who um, probably wrote the definitive book on Russell Poole and his investigation into it to find that his fellow police officers, you know, he thinks believes killed Tupac. And so, you know, then uh, Nick Broomfeld did, did a good movie called uh, Biggie and Tupac about it also. But Randall Sullivan's book, um, Labyrinth, uh, three top, you know, um, groups in Hollywood tried to make movies out of that. First, it, first it was, um, Sylvester Stallone. He, you know, it was announced that he was making a movie where he was going to play Russell Poole and that was, it ended up being stymied. And then DreamWorks, uh, DreamWorks had Leonardo DiCaprio playing Russell Poole. That went very far. It was almost, you know, about to come out, and then uh, powerful forces, you know, stopped that project. And finally, you had Johnny Depp playing Russell Poole. I saw the previews in the theaters, in, in about three different theaters, this, you know, uh, last summer, and they stopped it the last minute before it came out. Oh, that's it's incredible how they could do that. Yeah, and so uh, you know, this is like just some of the of the power you know behind stopping the truth about Tupac from coming out. Yeah, and that that seems like such an obvious. That that was actually going to be my next question: is what are some of the telltale signs a person can look for to know that uh, you're being lied to, and this story isn't. Uh, what everyone is making it out to be. I think that movie being killed three times is a good example, but what are some other other clues you can look for to let you know you should be investigating the story a little more? Yeah, I mean, some of it is the fact that in the very beginning of, it, of an incident, like when an incident first happens, you'll see evidence of what might have really happened in the beginning in different media sources. And then all of a sudden, you won't see those those uh, pieces of evidence repeated ever again, as if they never happened, as if they were never even said, even by the same source. You know, like the New York Times might come out with something in the very beginning, or the Washington Post, for example, with when Tupac was shot in the New York recording studio lobby in 1994, 
before he was killed, um, he, uh, they said in, this, uh, in a strange twist to this uh, already strange trial of Tupac for supposed sexual assault, the same police officers that first arrived at, his, you know, at the sexual assault scene a year before in a different part of New York City were the first to arrive in uh, Times Square when he was shot. Wow. And um, and so the Washington Post never repeated that again, as far as I could tell, because I was living in Washington at the time and reading it regularly. And so it's those are the kinds of ways that they they first come. Someone comes out with something, not realizing you know how how much he's revealing. And as editors say, you know we're not allowed to repeat these things again. It's what just what happens, you know. And so you can see that in most of the papers, where in the very beginning you'll see some clues and some good evidence, and then. The papers act like they, they never said that before, and they never repeated again. You know, so yeah, that was the very first episode of this podcast that we did was about the Oklahoma City bombing, and that was a a, a weird detail of that case where there's all these news reports from the day it happened saying the ATF is inside the building dismantling a second bomb that was found. And then that's just not part of the record anymore. But those stories, yeah. are, the, the coverage is still out there. And it, it, it kind of blows my mind that the, the explanation we take in situations like that is just, oh, well, we were wrong. And it's like, okay, but why were you so, why would you be, why were you wrong about something like that? And if you were wrong, yeah, where did a, you get it, it from? It's, right. It's such a clear observation, you know, ATF said we were doing this, and oh, we were wrong that the ATF said we were doing this, why would they lie about that? You know, it's just so clear-cut, you know, it's it's absurd the way they, they can do that, they can just pretend like, oh, we were wrong, but why, well, you know, why why were you so wrong the first time, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, let's uh, sort of switch gears here. Uh, it, it seems like since at least 9-11, or at least this is the impression I've always yeah. gotten, that there's been kind of an adversarial relationship between the CIA and the FBI. Uh, does that, would you agree with that? Do you think that's a thing? And no. if so, does it play into what's happening in the country now at all? No, I think that's just theater. I think there's, there might be, you know, whistleblowing agents in the FBI, like Colleen Rowley, who, who might be adversarial towards the CIA because she, you know, tried to reveal some things that she found out that might, you know, make the CIA look bad. But basically, you know, U.S. intelligence has a pretty clear-cut hierarchy. And, uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's even been uh, quoted as saying, you know, when it comes to the CIA, I, I you know, I, I can't do much. You know, I can't, you know, he, they, they have the power. Right. Um, it's, the hierarchy's there. You know, it's in the, NS, uh, you know, the National Security Act of 1947 that the CIA director is the uh, supervisor of all the other intelligence directors. And people say, oh, that's just for show. It's not. It's, it's the way it seems to work. Now, there may be, maybe naval intelligence might have a little more power these days. Who knows? But basically, there's about 17, um, it was just in the newspapers the other day, that there were 17 different intelligence you know, agencies. And um, so there's just, they do you know, work together on so many operations and uh, they cover up so much. And that's why we have perpetual war, like the oligarchs won. And often those perpetual wars are for resources such as opium fields of Afghanistan or the cocaine, you know, area, grow, best cocaine growing areas down in Latin America. And there's a, you know, and of course the oil fields. And those are some of the reasons, you know, for our wars. So. Right. 
Yeah, it uh, when it when it comes to skeptics, we've sort of talked about this already. But when it comes to a person who is just skeptical of the idea of conspiracy theories in general, is there one particular uh, case that you would point a person to uh, as kind of a primer on? Well, we know this happened, so why would you put other things past the government? For me, it's MK Ultra. That's I think why I'm so into this book because that Good. was Good. that was a thing where you know we came out and at first after everyone shredded all their documents after Watergate, the government kind of acknowledges MK Ultra was a thing, but downplays how big it was, and then we find these twenty thousand other f- documents that were stored in the wrong place. And they have to come out and go, all right, yeah, you got us. It was pretty big. So that, that's one thing I always point to, point people to as proof that, yes, these things do happen. Is there any anything along those lines that, that you would also direct people to? Yeah, I don't know which, you know, what I would direct people towards in particular, because, I mean, part of me would say the JFK assassination. The problem is, is that uh, mainstream media is so muddled, all this you know, all so much evidence that, you know, about JFK's assassination that it's just hard. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad you think MKUltra is what you point people to. I think it is incredibly important. I think the, you know, the Senate committee report on MKUltra really outlines so much of this. And uh, the problem, though, is, is that, um, I guess, you know, so few people have seen the Senate, you know, Church Committee's report on MKUltra. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it's still, even that Church Committee report stays a little bit abstract and doesn't get into all the details that I get into. And, um, you know, uh, even the, um, you know, the documents that were found, there's about 30,000 documents that were found on MKUltra. But, uh, the people that have read through all those documents are people like Martin Lee, who founded Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, um, who wrote the book Acid Dreams, which is, you know, um, I think one, one of the best books on just the LSD part of MKUltra. Right. But um, he said that that um, based on the documents that, that he went over and, and his co-author went over, um, there, there appear to be about... Uh, ninety, you know, ninety percent of the documents are are gone, and these are about ten percent of the documents. He says it, it appears to be three hundred thousand documents, and we got to read about thirty of them, thirty thousand of them. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's likely that we still don't know the the whole scope of how big right. that operation was. Right. And it yeah, it seems unlikely to me that we would pump that much money and spend so many years looking into it if none of it was working and. Right. We were making no progress at all. Like it, it's it, it just seems inconceivable to me. Yeah, it's over twenty over twenty years of, of it running, and um, yeah, at least twenty years that was documented by the you know church committee, Senate Church Committee, and um, you know, and it's just so many sub projects that were they have you know uh, on file one hundred forty nine sub projects, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's so many locations, so many different parts of the country and the world when it was running, yeah. Do you think we're getting close to an MK Ultra revelation kind of moment when it comes to UFOs? I don't know. I'm sorry to say I just don't know anything about UFOs. I you know look I I've been interviewed by a lot of people that, you know, talk about that with UFOs stuff. The only problem I have is I guess is the fact that because it it could involve something outside of our 
planet, it's just, it can be so beyond our knowledge that it's just hard to, to disprove or, or prove. And that's the problem, you know, when it gets, comes to UFOs. So I just don't know. I don't research and I don't know anything about UFOs. I'm sorry to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I bring it up because there were, there have been two New York Times articles in the past. Uh, there was one in 2017, another one again in May 2019, where there, uh, I mean, it goes into a lot of detail about this program that we've been funding for years that was headed by Harry Reid and Robert Bigelow, who is uh, kind of on the cutting edge of space travel in the United States, but also runs the Budget Suites motel chain, which seems alarming to me. But I, I feel like that's the same sort of thing where these two different articles made it really clear that we've been putting a lot of money over the years into researching what these two are are working on. And I, I feel like that's always kind of good evidence that there's something there. Yeah, definitely. It could be. I, I don't know. I just don't know much about it. Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Um, so last question. I'll let you get out of here. Um, this is this is a heavy one. Uh, most of your work centers around covering organizations that uh, we're accusing of literally killing people who get in their way. Do you uh, do you or have you ever felt like your own life was in danger as a result of covering this stuff? Uh, yeah, sure. I, um, you know, the Something happened in my house the other day that worried me. Uh, things have happened with my phone. Things have happened with my computer. Things have happened with my mail. Um, there's been a lot of things uh, that have happened that, yeah, do make me fear for my life. And, you know, I, I started talking with a um, another researcher who was doing some, you know, overlapping research as I was doing. And he all of a sudden, you know, he, a month or two before, he got warned that people that do, you know, talk about the stuff he talks about could suddenly find themselves with stage four cancer. This was David McGowan. And all of a sudden, he gets diagnosed with stage four cancer like a week after we had started talking. And Jesus. Um, dies dies three to three or four months later, and so um, yeah, I'm always a little concerned. Sure, yeah, you know. So what can you do? Yeah, uh, just keep moving forward and try to um, try to hope for the best. You know. Yeah, for sure. Ugh. But these days, there actually is so many people. So many people are coming out from coming at it from so many different angles with so many different uh, you know. Uh, attempts to uncover what's happening with U.S. intelligence, you know, podcasts like yours, um, researchers like them, just off the top of my head, a guy named Donald Jeffries does uh, some more research as me, one different other, you know, kind of overlapping areas. There's just loads of people attacking this from a lot of different angles. So I think that hopefully it's diffusing, you know, my, you know, any importance of my work um, right. so that they don't think that, you know, um, so I don't get targeted, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I I feel like that. That's I, I talk about the the idea of conspiracy theories in general being just discredited across the board, and I bring it up so much because I feel like that's sort of what we need to make reporting on things like this safer for people. Is there needs to be a general shift in consciousness. Toward the idea, it seems like it's happening. Toward the idea, yeah, it seems like it's happening. Though I agree. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think as opposed to uh, calling conspiracy theorists crazy people, I feel like we're at a point in history where we should more be in a perpetual state of questioning the government and what they're doing. 
Like everything that yeah. comes out, we should have a few questions. And uh, yeah, I really agree with you. And I think I think with the new technologies, in terms of all of the like new film and television kind of groups, and um, you know, Amazon's a, a weird mixed bag. I mean, I know they're, they're um, you know they do a lot there are a lot of bad things about Amazon, but they bought out Washington Post and all of a sudden um, have an article from one of my sources about you know who who really killed Robert Kennedy. And um, wow. it, was, it actually went extremely far. That article went as far as my book did about who really killed Robert Kennedy. So it's, 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 things seem to be breaking a bit now. So I think there's hope. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And uh, I appreciate you talking to us today. I appreciate the work you're doing. And sure, thanks a lot for having me on, Adam. Yeah, keep at it, man, and be safe. You do the same. Take care now. All right, thank you. Talk Good to you talking later. to you. Yep, Take bye. care. All right. I told you it was going to be interesting. Again, if you want to see a couple more sources speculating on the idea that maybe Jeffrey Epstein was just running a big blackmailing ring for who, we have no fucking idea. Check out uh, unpops.com. We linked to a few sources there. Check out John's book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, and the accompanying documentary. We linked to both of those on the website. And... Thanks, everybody. That's an episode. We love you. 